This is Are We Europe, the podcast for changing continents. We ask the small questions and get the big answers. We dive into all things European cultures and identities and bounce all over the continent. It's about the places and people that come to life in sound-rich stories, readouts from our print magazines, episodes from one of the amazing podcasts in our podcast family, or intimate behind-the-scenes interviews with our favorite storytellers and Europe's most talented creators. We got it all on this channel. It's Europe, streaming right in your ears. Are we, are we on? Are we? Are we Europe? What the truth is and how it should be told. I think there are a lot of borders to be broken. You can build it together. Community. And I believe in Josh. Open minds, open borders, openness. <laughs> Try to make Europe sexy. With all sense. Sense. Are we? Are we? Are, are we, we Europe? Europe? <laughs> <laughs> what up? Are we Europe? Boom. Hi, listeners. Welcome to a series about what it means to be queer and European. My name is Annelien Opov, and I am the editor-in-chief of The Queer Issue. Every quarter, Are We Europe surprises their members with a story that pushes the boundaries of journalism, story-based recipes, interactive maps, or, as in this case, a podcast collaboration with Europe et Sentiment, produced by Letizia Chavan. It's so frustrating that women are considered a fucking minority. You feel like we were given a gift, you know? It's like, okay, don't worry, let's make a little anti-discrimination law. And you're like, what? I mean, this is absurd. Not so long ago, I had a fairly naive view of women's rights in Europe. As a young French woman whose right to abortion has been acquired since 1975, thank you Simone Veil, I believe that women's rights were part of the package, if I can say so, to become a member state of the European Union. And then I went for a weekend to Dublin, in Ireland, on May 25, 2018, the day of the referendum to legalize abortion for Irish women. While taking the bus from the airport to the city center, I was shocked. Posters everywhere of fetuses, slogan claiming baby murderers. And not only did I realize that abortion was not legalized in Ireland yet, but that it was the case in several European countries, including Poland, Malta and Northern Ireland. My name is Leticia Chaban. I am French and a European woman. You are listening to Europe et Sentiment. Episode 4, do you need to be a man to be European? To what extent do European women see in the European Union, in the European institutions, a guarantee for their rights? Well, I'm not sure. There have been studies, not many, on the subject that show that, in fact, more than half of women don't know how Europe protects them. They have an idea of Europe as working in favor of women's rights. It's a study from 2015, I think. But more than half couldn't say how. And I think this is really, really speaks for itself. What is the place of women in Europe? Do we share the same rights? What is the role of the European Union in defending women's rights? In France, women had the right to abort for 45 years. 
For me, it's a bit like the one-on-one -on -one course for women's rights, the minimum shared at least by all European countries. So when I spoke with Naomi O'Leary, an Irish journalist who covered the referendum, I asked her if the fact that the Republic of Ireland has been part of the European Union since 1973 had helped advance the women's right in her country. The role that the EU had or EU membership had um, is fairly indirect. Um, certainly the circumstances this allowed um, for our Irish society to get to the point at which it is now. Some At times, Irish women turned to um, European courts to try and get um, abortion access through the law. So they turned to the European Court of Human Rights, for example, to argue um, that it breached their human rights to have to travel or in cases of fatal fetal abnormality, which is when um, a woman who pre is pregnant with a fetus that won't survive outside the womb, um, they argued that not having access to abortion in those cases uh, contravened human rights but they do, didn't always get favorable uh, judgments from the European Court of Human Rights on that um, the it was actually the um, the United Nations Human Rights Committee that tended to side with um, the appellants that went to them and the condemnation from the UN um, was certainly something that was reported in Ireland and was used to argue against the uh, status quo um, Irish women were also able to travel to other European countries to access abortion. Obviously, they were traveling in the greatest numbers to our next door neighbors in Britain. Um, and there was, you know, I think it was 12 women a day were doing that. Um, but they were also going to countries like the Netherlands and Spain, although that was more rare. So obviously the setting of, uh, of um, having the ability to... to access healthcare in all the EU countries and also to travel. That was key to the, the, the kind of workarounds that Irish women were doing. The referendum campaign was very difficult, as Noemi explains, because it touches on fundamental values on both sides. When you fight against the murder of children, to use the arguments of the retained camp, you are ready to do anything to defend your point of view, even to lie or to make women feel guilty. What struck me about the repeal campaign was there was a doggedness to it. It was, it wasn't um, a feel-good campaign. It was a battle. It was a long-fought, difficult battle. It was, it was, um, it was difficult. People were were when you met when the activists in favor of repealing met with opposition. It was bitter. It was bitter on both sides. The language was very difficult. Um, you might be called a baby killer, uh, things like that. Those who wanted to retain the ban on abortion do so from a motivation of believing that they're saving the lives of babies and the most innocent people in society. So if you were to stop a baby from being murdered, it ex you know if, if that's what you're doing, that's what your aim is, it excuses almost anything. Um, so people will fight extremely hard and use lots of tactics that you might not see in other kinds of campaigns. So there were demonstrations outside maternity hospitals showing um, very uh, vivid, uh, gory images of fetuses, for example. Um, so it was a huge national conversation. 
and it involved uh, yeah women opening up about horrible things that they'd gone through and that had happened to them in terms of their trauma that they experienced with whether it was miscarriages having to go to England for an abortion um the having to carry to term babies that weren't viable you know that were that were always going to die and you know lots of horrible experiences very intimate ones as well so it was uh yeah a, a huge national conversation and a difficult campaign it wasn't a, a happy clappy feel good campaign when the result came out um there was just this huge sense of relief there was shock that the, the percentage that voted for it was so high more than 66% of irish people voted in favor of legalizing abortion in a country still very marked by the catholic religion this means that it is not only young people but a large majority of the irish population who have allowed the right to abortion in ireland the choice to hold a referendum on the part of irish prime minister of the time leo varadkar is not trivial as julia de epola notes Julia is Argentinian, with a German origin, doing a master at the Institute of Higher Studies of Latin America in Paris. She also writes regularly for The Grand Continent, a geopolitical think tank on the feminist issues. If she obviously finds that the referendum results are going in the right direction, she questions the choice of the method. D'ailleurs, c'est assez intéressant parce que la, la légalisation en Irlande, elle a eu lieu vraiment au moment où la campagne... It's really interesting, actually, because the legalization in Ireland took place right when the campaign in Argentina was in full swing. And there was a pretty ambivalent reaction to the vote in Ireland, actually, because on the one hand, we were all very happy that abortion was legalized elsewhere. It was really becoming... It was inspiring hope. But an important detail is that in Ireland, it was done by referendum. And one of, how can I explain it, one of the ideas defended by perhaps the most intellectual part of the campaign in Argentina is that a right like the right to abortion shouldn't be voted by referendum. It shouldn't be submitted to a vote. It's something that comes from above, from those in power. Those in power must take action. There's something very performative in this action taken by those in power. There's something that changes the meaning. The meaning changes when those in power guarantee the rights, when the action comes from above, even if the campaign is a campaign that comes from below. And that's also very important. It's very important that the state endorses this and takes responsibility for women's rights. And while... I'm very happy that abortion has been legalized in Ireland. I'm not a fool either. It's often necessary to adapt the means to the reality on the ground. But for this sort of thing, I'm quite skeptical of direct democracy. Ireland is far from being the only European country where abortion was recently inaccessible to women. In Northern Ireland, which is part of Great Britain, where abortion was legalized by law in 1967, Northern Irish women only got this right in December 2018, which means a few months after legalizing in Ireland. Feminist movements from Northern Ireland have ride the wave and take advantage of the great victory in Ireland to make their voice heard. In Poland, abortion is only allowed in cases of rape, 
incest or danger to the mother, and in Malta it is prohibited. Gosia Woszawska is a young Polish woman, an activist and a feminist, who has fought for women's rights in her country for a long time. I had the chance to talk to her over the phone. We are really aware in Poland, no matter what option you support, we really are aware that the the access to abortion depends on your country. We really got that. I mean, this is the big lesson of the last three years that we've been trying to push through, is that to show that it really, really is in the hands of our politicians, our national politicians. So if they don't support women's rights, they don't support their choice, it's their fault. It's never the EU. Because on the contrary, actually, we received so much more understanding and support from the EU in general. And you can just expect women's rights to be more respected in other countries than you, you do in Poland with in respect, you know, in some fields of life, which for us is uh, abortion and everything connected to health. And I actually think that one of the subjects that made people understand what are the competencies of their country against the EU and politicians cannot play with it anymore that much. I mean, we've already been, we really are going through a big lesson of civic awareness in Poland with all the protests going on with people getting mobilized and active in the subject that were just, you know, weren't present in public debate for years because there was no emergency situation as it is at the moment. I mean, um, it's not only women's rights that are um, endangered in Poland, but it's also the whole rule of law that is already considered to be violated both by the EU and the Council of Europe and also the the UN with our national tribunal, uh, with the constitutional tribunal, with uh, common court, um, the changes, the reforms that have been introduced by the government have caused uh, attention or raised attention uh, abroad. My conclusion is that people really got informed much better for the whole, um, you know, because because of what is happening. So you can have more people just being interested and better informed on how a country works, what the rule of law means, what are the European values, why do we need the European framework, why it can be beneficial for us, not only in terms of money or common agriculture policy or internal market, but because it can safeguard us from authoritarian government. While discussing with Gozia, who has not always been a convinced European, but who was always interested in it, I understand that the entry of Poland to the European Union in May 2004 allowed her to fully realize the gap in terms of rights between Poland, her country, and most of European member states. But Poland is not the only one. Even in supposedly progressive countries like Germany, this right is not yet fully acquired. Abortion is only decriminalized. That's what the journalist and author, Bruno Antoine, who launched the project Sisters of Europe in 2018, picturing 27 European women, told me. She shared with me her experience of abortion in Germany a few years ago. 
j'ai eu la, enfin, cette, cette aventure, moi, voilà, pareil. Same for me. In France, abortion is a bit like a basic right, even if we know that this right today is being questioned more and more. But that's always the case with women's rights. It's that as soon as there is a crisis situation, boom, it disappears. But when I moved to Germany, I had an abortion, so I can talk about that too. And it's something that is not really legal. Abortion in Germany is decriminalized. That means you are not thrown in prison, but it's not legal either. You have a really annoying procedure, you have deadlines, you have a consultation with kind of a psychologist who actually tries to get you back on the right path. It's absolutely ludicrous. There is a legal paragraph in Germany that dates back to the Third Reich, paragraph 219, which decriminalizes abortion under certain circumstances, but it still doesn't make it legal. There was quite a debate last year because, in fact, a physician, the gynecologist portrait in Sisters of Europe, Christina Hennel, was accused and taken to court because on her website she gave information about the abortion procedure and it was considered to advertise the abortion. And therefore she was taken to court. She was found guilty and had to pay a fine of, I don't remember exactly, I think it was something like 5,000 euros. So it caused a lot of stir all over the news last year in Germany. This is also why we chose her, because she embodied this side of, well, pro-abortion figure in Germany, a country that is still quite conservative and that is still, well, this paragraph in question has still not been repealed. Despite all the debate that was and still is happening, the discussions, the confrontations, And you know, at the same time, the one-year paternity leave, it's great. So there are good things and there are shitty things, like in every country. And uh, I have to be honest, I don't understand the paternity leave in France, that we're still saying, mm, yes, we will maybe increase it to 10 days. And I'm like, 10 days of paternity leave? But how do French women do it? Abortion is obviously not the only woman's right to defend. But for me, it's symbolic and symptomatic enough to give an idea of the level of equality between men and women in a country. Equal pay was enshrined in 1957 in the Treaty of Rome as one of the European principles, and again in the Treaty of Amsterdam in 1997 as, I quote, a fundamental community principle. But if we take a closer look, If France wanted the inclusion of this article in 1957, it was not to promote equal wages or the economic emancipation of women, but to fight against competition from German textile. France initially wanted to protect its industry. As Julia reminds me, there is a difference between a principle and its implementation. Dans le traité de Rome est inscrit le principe de l'égalité salariale. The Treaty of Rome includes the principle of equal pay. It's included above all for economic reasons, because countries like France were afraid that the absence of this principle would be harmful to them from the perspective of a common market. But hey, the principle is there. But you really have to dig into the reasons why, because it's nice to say that in 1957 we had equal pay, Except that what you also need to look at is the reality on the ground. 
The average pay gap in Europe is, if I'm not mistaken, at 16%. The best country is Romania, but in Germany it's around 20%. These are things that are all the more glaring when we look at them in conjunction with other data, such as social class, ethnic origin. So, how to promote the place of women in Europe? A better representativeness in our European institution? Since the last European election in May 2019, we have seen a clear improvement on this side, with 40% of women in the European Parliament, even if we have not yet reached parity. With Ursula von Leyen at the head of the European Commission and Christine Lagarde at the head of the European Central Bank, new role models are emerging, and that's for the best. Beyond the European institutions, several women are at the head of European countries, such as in Germany, obviously, with Angela Merkel, but also in Finland, with the no less famous Sanna Marin, or in Slovakia, Estonia, and Greece. But is it enough? As Prin reminds me, Angela Merkel did not shine during her two terms in promoting women's rights. For Julia, representativeness and parity are tools, but do not solve all the challenges. Déjà. To start, how can we obtain this representation and what are we going to represent? I think that these two questions are somewhat inherent in the idea of representation. Well, first of all, there's the question of parity as a political principle, which is talked about a lot even within feminism. And so, betting on parity, it's accepting the sexualization of individuals in the short term, in order to then, in the medium term, erase, in a way, this sexual difference because we impose de facto the presence of women in politics. This is definitely an imperfect theory because it doesn't change the underlying problem. There's always a risk of seeing this as somewhat North American-style quotas. There's a risk of essentialism, which is real. And to get elected, to take up what Joan Scott says, to get elected in the name of biology will lead to reproducing the difference between the sexes, and in theory, not to questioning it. And this is the whole contradiction of French feminism, the paradoxes on which it's based. But, you know, it's also a question of changing how we see things. And for that, representation is very important, because it's a question of normalizing the female presence, which, in the medium term, allows us precisely to begin to erase this idea of sexual difference in the spheres of power, of an abstract individual who is male, to incorporate the gender perspective, which is what is generally called in institutions gender mainstreaming. And in this sense, it's undoubtedly necessary to force things in a way. If it doesn't happen naturally, and we're well aware that the work on mentalities is done in the long term and is difficult to measure, well, after a while, you have to tell yourself, well, women have to be present. They must be present in decision-making. They must be able to respond to problems which primarily concern women. Their points of view must be integrated from the outset. However, just a small detail, being a woman doesn't mean you're a feminist. So parity and representation are important tools, 
but we have to always look at them, not just in a critical way, but in a way that's very attentive, very aware. We can't just rely on this idea of representation. It's important, but it's a given that it always has to be evaluated at all stages, looked at in an in-depth way, and if possible, from various points of view. What also concerns me is that the least progressive European countries today are, for some, countries which not so long ago, on the contrary, were promoting women's rights. We tend to forget that the countries of the former Soviet Union were much more advanced on the subjects of women's rights, with the right to have free abortion, equality between spouses, maternity leave, and the guarantee of finding your job after a pregnancy. Obviously, it was far from being perfect, but for the time, much more advanced than in Western Europe. Therefore, I was a bit intrigued to see this pendulum swing back over the past 20 years. Of course, yes, there was clearly... In Germany, it was kind of synthesized because it's now one country. So suddenly you can see, depending on whether you talk to someone from Frankfurt or from Leipzig. So obviously someone in his 30s today, they did not know... Well, they were born with the fall of the wall, but they grew up with mothers who lived in former DDR, families who also had a whole heritage, and clearly there were basic rights in Eastern Germany. The right to abortion, omnipresent childcare, so it was normal to work and have a family. And then this completely free mentality from this Judeo-Christian paternalistic heritage, etc., So they were way ahead on women's rights. Russia, in fact, was one of the first countries with voting rights for women and then the economic independence of women who had a job and therefore more freedom. Morals were also much freer. You can think of FKK, the concept of German nudism, which was common sense in Eastern Germany. So it was linked to a lot of other things, not only sexual freedom. But what I mean is that there were much more laws in favor of equality between men and women in the Eastern Bloc. Uh, the problem was that when the system started to break, if you take Poland, for example, the church has played a rather important role against the regime, that there was, um, they took a stand against the communists. So there were a lot of dissidents and opponents received support from the church. And this is what explains why today suddenly the place of the church has become, well, you know, the system collapsed in 89 and the church was a part of those who helped overthrow the communists, the dictatorship and so on. So they had a pretty nice sympathy capital on which afterwards they also prospered. And the case of Poland is emblematic and this also explains why the church uh, made this huge comeback after there had basically been no church during the whole communist era. So after there was a comeback of the church and thus of the traditional values. Then there is the whole question of populism, which is obviously something political. It doesn't have anything to do with religion, but still they have completely old school leaders 
But there's also this question which, as there are countries which have experienced enormous economic and social upheavals over the past 20 years, during all the 90s, the 2000s, and uh, they have joined the European Union by saying to themselves, now we're a little safer. Because uh, for many of these countries, it was uh, a lot of these countries had always been a bit in a fight against the surrounding great powers. If you take Hungary and the Czech Republic, for example, it used to be Austria-Hungary. So countries that have always had trouble both asserting independence and individuality, therefore a very strong search for identity. So this kind of fragility to show that you are different, you do not belong to Austria-Hungary or to Russia or to the European Union. So you always see this side of having a dissonant voice. As part of Sisters of Europe project, Prune launched a survey asking her readers what they think is the most important law to advance women's rights in Europe. The majority of responses propose harmonizing the right to abortion on a European scale or extending parental leave. But some also propose the creation of a European feminist political party. If they are European feminist movements, they are very little known to the general public today. While I'm quite familiar with the feminist issues in France, I had no idea about the referendum in Ireland before going there, or the inaccessibility of abortion in Poland and Malta. Why, as a French woman, don't we fight for women's rights in Europe? So you can tell me, there is a lot to do in each country, and that's true, but I find it quite surprising that there is no coalition, no stronger alliance of women in Europe to defend our rights. Aspirer à un féminisme proprement européen entraîne un risque. Aspiring to a truly European feminism entails a risk of, well, what Françoise Vergès, who is a well-known feminist today, calls civilizational feminism, which she also contrasts with decolonial feminism, which is the type of feminism that she calls for. A European feminism that asserts itself as such undoubtedly runs the risk of being above all a white and bourgeois feminism, which recreates other forms of domination, whether of class or race, in the name of women's rights, of an idea of liberal democracy that other peoples should emulate, which is quite paternalistic, while it runs the risk of being quite paternalistic. It's this feminism, for Françoise Vergès, who is very radical about this, It's this feminism that would say, you don't have freedom, you don't know your rights, will help you reach the appropriate level of development. And this white, European, bourgeois feminism exists in reality that can't be denied. There are dominant discourses which undoubtedly reappropriate the term feminism. But in this sense, I think it's especially interesting to use Europe I would say, as a geopolitical scale of analysis. It's a relevant scale, moreover, um, more so than as a claim of identity for feminism. To perhaps think of the possibility of promoting more than a European feminism, but a feminist Europe, in the sense of 
The feminism in particular promoted by Vergès, who takes note of what's happening elsewhere, which decentralizes the point of view. Françoise Vergès would surely see an extremely dangerous institutionalization, a reappropriation of decolonialism. In short, that's debatable. In any case, rethinking which Europe, how can we carry out a truly inclusive feminism that takes into account other forms of domination in Europe and from Europe? Because we must be aware of, how can I explain it, of the conditions of making a feminist claim, I think, rather than making it at all costs a regional nationalist feminism, ultimately hegemonic. So I think it's interesting to think about the possibility of a feminist Europe that gets rid of its Eurocentrism as much as possible, and its overarching civilizational thinking. And in this sense, feminism can also be a learning experience for Europe, to think about its place in the world, its relationship to other parts of the world, and the image that's conveyed from this part of the world. As Julia points out, Europe remains one of the continent where the place of women and the defense of our rights are the most advanced today, and we must celebrate it. However, I think it is also our responsibility to defend the place of women at the European level. For example, Gisèle Halimi, a great French feminist figure, had been at the initiative of a project aiming at promoting throughout Europe a legislative body made up of the best existing laws. It was called Clause of the Most Favored European Woman. I believe that Europe must have a stronger vision on gender equality. It's true that when I learned that, yes, abortion is not legal in Poland, in contrast to what happened in Ireland, it surprises me. Because in fact, that's what you were saying. It goes against the image that I have of Europe as, you know, the place in the world where women's rights are perhaps the most respected and the most advanced and so on. Indeed, there's a fairly general idea of respect, progressivism, etc., which is real, and we have to remember that, because in matters of law, Europe is quite advanced, and we must celebrate this. But we also have to take a close look, because these are laws that are playing out at the national level. In a Europe built by founding fathers, has the European Union been an asset for women? Again, if Europe is quite advanced, it is clear that there is still a lot to do. And in order to get things done, it is, above all, essential to know the current situation in terms of women's rights in Europe. I do hope this podcast will help. For those who'd like to keep on thinking, I recommend reading Julia Di Ippola's article, 10 points on the feminist perspective of lockdown, which analyzes with a cross perspective on France, Germany and Argentina, the backlash to women's rights in the time of Corona crisis. And of course, I invite you to read the portraits of these 27 European women on the sistersofeurope.eu website. This is the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed writing it editing it and directing it. Each episode is a question. So, please don't hesitate to leave a comment on our Facebook page or Twitter page or on your favorite podcast platform.
And if you like this podcast, please don't forget to share. I hope to see you soon. Did you like listening to this story? Dive into all our readouts from this issue or previous ones, or listen to our narrative Are We Europe stories wherever you get your earful of audio right now. And don't forget, you can also become an Are We Europe member and connect with storytellers across the continent starting at four euros a month. Just go to areweeurope.com slash member and help us build a new media for a changing continent. That's areweeurope.com slash member.